good evening. Um, last August, I was um, my wife and I set a two-week meditation retreat on Maui. Um, I had never been to Maui before, and um, it was great. It was just beautiful. And then we spent a little extra time while we were there, um, just vacationing for a few days. And so we, one day we went around to where some of the real fancy resorts are. And I got a, found this um, poster. I got a copy of it, which is for, uh, it says, Chocolate Yoga. And I wanted just to read something about it. I thought it was very interesting. It says, um, chocolate yoga, an exercise concept where inner peace starts with the stomach. The practice combines the natural high of stretching with the endorphin high of eating chocolate (laughs) to facilitate relaxation, health, and happiness. Sounded great. A typical class begins with a sacramental, sacramental offering of raw chocolate, which is homemade from organic cocoa and sweetened with honey. And then they bring the mindfulness part in here. They say, participants are invited to start nibbling, focusing on the sensations that unfold as the full expression of the chocolate works its way from the mouth to the body. And then it ends by saying, warning, eating raw chocolate and doing yoga may cause you to have the best day ever. <laughs> so, and it sounded great. You can see the poster here if you want. Uh, it was it sounded great. I was going to go to it. Uh, it just didn't work in my schedule. Uh, it was only $10, and I bet I could easily eat more than $10 worth of chocolate uh, <laughs> myself. So I want to come back to that in a minute, but that was something around chocolate. And then as I was reflecting on when I saw the poster and the associations around chocolate, I happen to be a big chocolate lover. Some of you may or may not, Uh, but I I really like chocolate. I didn't used to particularly have a sweet tooth, and my wife got me into it a little bit, and I've literally developed, I get a little craving for chocolate now that I didn't used to have. It's literally had have created that over time. It, just thinking about it now, um, you know, if I could use a nice little piece, it would be great. So um, for me, it's a real pleasant, pleasant association. So then I just wanted to share one more chocolate piece here. Um, Dove makes a kind of chocolate called Promises. I'm not going to read all of these, but each wrapper has a little... Um, saying in it. So you eat this really delicious dark chocolate and then you get this little saying in it. So I just wanted to give you a sense of kind of the feeling here. So I'll just read a few. This one says, watch reruns. They replay your memories. Let's see. Be fearless. Uh, This one says, do what feels right. You're allowed to do nothing. You get the sense of these, right? Send a love letter this week. Uh, Get your feet massaged. um, I like this one. If they can do it, you know you can. This one. 
Go to your special place. Find your passion. You know, oh, let's see, one or two more. Oh, I like this one. Listen to your heartbeat and dance. That's kind of nice. And then I'll just read this last one. You know what? You look good in red. <laughs> so to me, the association, and there's a reason why I bring this up, uh, around chocolate, whether it's the chocolate yoga or um, these little wrappers, to me what it says is, everything's going to be okay. Life's good. Take care of yourself. It's all right. <laughs> There's some feeling like, okay, life can be good there. Um, I want to contrast that with a different kind of language that sometimes it often gets used in Buddhist teachings. And I want to read something from Ajahn Chah, who has uh, been a... I never had the opportunity to meet him, but um, he's been a tremendous teacher for me just through his writings. He's talking about, he says, the practitioners of old saw that wherever they looked, there was only suffering. That's all. It's just like a big iron ball which has been forged in a furnace. It's hot all over. If you touch the top, it's hot. Touch the sides, and they're hot. It's hot all over. There isn't any place on which it is cool. And then one more place, he says. So the Buddha examined the causes and conditions underlying existence and rebirth. This is a very different type of language than this yoga, than this chocolate language. His investigation, talking about the Buddha, forged ahead until it was clear to him that everything that comes into existence is like a, everything that comes to in, in existence, Ajahn Chah is saying, Chah is saying, is like a lump of red hot iron. The five categories of a human being's experience are all a lump of red hot iron. The five categories is a way, won't go into it tonight, but it's a way of deconstructing what it is to be a human being. It includes consciousness and the body, perception. There's these categories that break down the whole human being into these, it's just a way of deconstructing. He says everything it is to be a human being is like red hot iron. That's a pretty radical statement. When a lump of iron is glowing red hot, is there anything it can be touched without getting burnt? Is there anywhere at all that is cool? Try touching it on the top, the sides or underneath. Is there a single spot that can be found that's cool? Cool? Impossible. This searing lump of iron is entirely red hot. Okay. So that's very different saying that, and he's using very dramatic language saying suffering, right? That everything is suffering, even from his perspective, this chocolate yoga. So how, how are we to hold these? 
Because the truth is we can create circumstances, external circumstances, and have experiences that do bring us a lot of happiness and joy and make us feel good and bring a great sense of well-being to us. So, for example, and you can create your own if this one doesn't fit, but what I was just describing, you go to Maui, which is it's beautiful, and you can go to these kind of classes and take care of yourself and, it's, and just be in this serenity and this beauty, and it does feel great. And we are happier and we do tend to be more relaxed and at ease and at peace, right? The traditional story of the Buddha soon after his enlightenment says that within, and the the accounts vary, but within a week to a few weeks after his enlightenment, he traveled and met up with a group of five ascetic practitioners that he used to do intensive practices with before his enlightenment. And then he ended up leaving them to, to do some other practices. So he went back to them to teach. And the first Dharma talk he gave was called Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dharma. And he basically talked about uh, what's called the middle way and the Four Noble Truths. And so tonight I wanted to focus on this idea of the middle way. And the middle path of the middle way gets used in a lot of different ways. The way the Buddha uh, spoke about it in this first Dharma talk was he was finding the balance between the extremes of overindulgence and sense pleasures on one extreme and uh, asceticism on the other extreme. That both don't lead to uh, the liberation that the Buddha was pointing to. So he's finding this middle way. Um, I think it's important. None of us here, as I look around, are monks and nuns, so we're all living in the world. And yet, we've all come here tonight for some reason. We've been drawn to come and meditate and practice, hear the Dharma. Later we'll have time to share and discuss if anybody wants and to reflect on these Dharma teachings. So obviously, um, in some way or another, all of us are looking to find a way to Um, apply these Dharma teachings into our lives to find a way towards more happiness, towards more peace that's heading us towards more liberation. I don't like to use the word enlightenment myself because that's sort of this... It just sounds very big and far away. And I don't really know what that is. But for me, I like the word liberation. All of us, every single one of us, can come to more and more freedom. Every one of us can do that. And it's a process, it's a path that we're on. So we don't have to set it up as there's this thing out there way far away, this enlightenment. And then I'm way far away from that. I think that sets up a a dualism that makes us farther away than ever from enlightenment. 
But if we just look at this as a path that's leading to more and more freedom, a deeper and wider sense and more all-encompassing, ever more encompassing sense of well-being, so that sense of liberation that can grow and grow and grow and grow, that's a path that we can all be on. And it doesn't put this out into the future that yes, there is a path that's leading somewhere, but it's also a path that we can incorporate here and now. So I don't think any of us as lay practitioners are being asked to throw our lives away. The Buddha gave many, many teachings to the monks and the nuns, and he also gave many, many teachings to the lay practitioners too. So there was teachings for both. And I, I don't, I've read a lot in the early discourses and the early suttas, and I don't recall the Buddha ever telling lay people they had to leave their lives and throw it all away, but he was still pointing a path that leads towards uh, more well-being and more happiness and does lead to this liberation. So I don't think he's asking us to throw anything away, including you know, this chocolate yoga. Um, I thought it was great, and really, um, I'm looking forward to going back to Maui myself. I want to go back. Yet, I want to keep in mind the inherent limitations with that. And that's what we're pointing to when we talk about these teachings as a path of leading towards a liberation through non-clinging. If I think there's only one way to achieve happiness or well-being, which is in setting up the circumstances of my life in a certain way, which means there's a whole range of experiences I want to get, there's certain ways I want life to look, look. And there's a whole other range of experiences I don't want to have. I don't want to have pain, I don't want to have illness. That's fine. We're all doing that. Every one of us. But if that's my only, my only way to achieve happiness, then I'm in big trouble. Because we all know that life's changing, changing, it's always changing. Pleasant and unpleasant experiences come and go. Happiness and unhappiness come and go. Life's a constant change. To the extent I'm not able to find that place of well-being in the midst of that changing moment-to-moment flow of experience, then that's a place of suffering, if we want to use that word suffering. Or it's setting up the uh, seeds of potential suffering. The middle way talked about by the Buddha is finding that balance point that says, if, I, if I'm always going to the extreme of indulgence and self and sense pleasures for my well-being, which is what most of us as human beings are trying to do all the time, if that's the only tool I have in my toolkit, then I'm setting up, I'm setting up, I'm conditioning the mind to be dependent upon life being some set way in order to be happy. Which is fine as long as life is that way. 
what do I do in the times, the inevitable times that are going to come, when I'm not getting what I want or I'm getting what I don't want? So this middle way is finding a place that gets underneath the experience itself and finds the well-being more in what is the relationship I'm having moment by moment to this flow of experience rather than it only being about the experience itself. That's one of the things that happens. There's many uh, fruits and benefits that happen around the meditation practice, but one of the things that happens as we start to learn, and it takes time, as, as probably everyone here knows, to get to a place, and it takes persistence to get to the place where the mind starts to settle down. But when it does, and it does if we stick with the practice, it does we can start to find the place that rests at peace more and more with a wider and wider range of experiences. We'll still all have our limits. A story that I've told many times, some of you may have heard it, is when I was young, I was in my, um, about uh, 18 or 20 years old, I had just started uh, uh, into the meditation world and I was pretty naive and idealistic and um, I went to have a tooth filled and the dentist went to give me the Novocaine and I said, no, no, it's all right. Um, I don't want you to numb it up. I'm just going to stay present with whatever the experiences that come uh, and, just, and just be present with whatever experience. I don't know what this dentist thought of me. but uh, and. Um, so he, okay, and he's drilled. And I did go through the whole process and did get a, my tooth drilled without Novocaine, so I have done it. I don't remember much about it except I only remember, um, I remember that as soon as he started drilling, it was obvious that it wasn't even close. I couldn't be present with this. It was way too painful. And I also remember the thoughts going through my mind. Shankman, you have really done it this time. That's all I can remember. I don't know why I didn't ask him. You know, I'm sure if I would have just said, uh, Doc, um, yeah, I, I screwed up. I made a mistake. It's, it's too much. Numb me up. He would have just done it. I don't remember why I didn't have him do that. <laughs> so look, we're all going to have some limit if the experience gets too intense, whether it's too intensely pleasant or too intensely unpleasant, well, we're not going to have that balanced, equanimous place. No question about it. But through practice, as that circle widens to contain more and more of our experience, it can still it'll have its edge. I don't know what it's like if you're fully enlightened, but it can grow and grow and contain more and more of our experience, so we're resting at peace. That's the middle way. And then, you know, if we go to Hawaii and we eat the chocolate, great. You can do it. It's no big deal. You enjoy it. We just don't clinging. And when the difficulties come through, we learn it's still unpleasant. It's not like we hit some, uh, even in the really deep meditative states, unpleasant stays unpleasant. It's not like somehow this... This alchemy happens and, and unpleasant turns into some blissful 
transcendent state. No, unpleasant is unpleasant. But it doesn't jerk us around so much. And we're able to rest at ease and, and, um, and um, skate through more and more. So if we start to think about this as a path of, as of liberation through non-clinging, if we, if we can apply that however we want, we can go as far with it as we want and just bring it into our lives for whatever we want. So, for example, we can all see that any time, we all have times when we're creating a suffering because we're holding on to some idea of how we think things are supposed to be. I remember I used to um, live in Santa Cruz and I used to work in Silicon Valley for years and I was miserable on the commute just miserable for years. It took, you know, about an hour each way. It's two hours out of my life and I'm in this damn traffic and I'm just ruining my life. And, and it took a lot of years. And finally, I got it at some point. And it wasn't like I was faking it. Just something shifted, I guess, after all the suffering. And I realized, you know, really, I'm just sitting here in the car. It's not bad. I can turn on the radio, I can listen to the news, I can put on music. I'm just in the car. Wasn't bad at all. My whole suffering was around because I think I'm supposed to be someplace else and not in commute traffic. And when that happened, the whole experience just turned right around for me. And I'm not saying I never had any frustrations or that I wouldn't have preferred to have had that time to use it in another way so I don't have to get up quite as early to get to work. I could have gotten home early or done something else. Sure. I didn't lose the preference for that. But it was fine. And a whole mass of suffering I had around it just evaporated. And for all of us, we create so much of our own suffering in ways that we don't even realize sometimes. We just think it's the external circumstance. And we don't see that we're creating it. You know, an experiment, another thing I've talked about here many times, but you can try sometimes is when you're sitting in meditation and if, if you're, say, not having a pleasant meditation, maybe you're restless, sleepy, your body hurts, you can't calm down, you know, you're just sitting there waiting for the meditation to be over and then you just hear the bell and the mind goes, oh, you feel great. You haven't moved, Nothing's changed. You're still sitting exactly there, but just this happened. And this letting go happened in the, happens in the mind. It's a great place to look and to notice. Right there, how much of our suffering we were creating. And you can start to pay attention. I'm not going to say that we create all of our suffering. You know, if you're getting your tooth drilled without Novocaine, there's no way around it. There's some suffering in there. Or I'll, another example is I had, um, I, if any of you have ever had uh, gallbladder problems, I was having these gallbladder, I guess you call them attacks. And um, it's really painful. You know, it's like getting severe intestinal abdominal cramps that last for 10 or 12 hours at full maximum velocity 
and nothing you could, I could do would make it go away. I was trying everything. Finally, this happened to me three times. I was having this gallbladder problem over a period of a few months. And finally someone said to me, oh yeah, you know, gallbladder, that's one of the, um, that's one of the most painful things. You know, you go down to the emergency room, that's one of the things they give you morphine for to get through. So I was doing it, lying there for 10 or 12 hours, just kind of making it through. This was just this last year. Now I could actually, what I found there was I was actually quite mindful. It just demands your attention to be very present. It was so strong though that I couldn't, there was no place to find that ease of being in peace in the midst of it. It was more just gutting it out and hanging in there and really, really wishing this would go away. So of course there's, there's whole aspects, many aspects about our experience that are just inherently painful and suffering. But there is a lot more in which areas in which we create our own suffering. That's all I'm pointing to. And it's useful to start looking and paying attention to those. So we can start to learn to practice this non-clinging in any, in any experience to the extent we are able to have some kind of letting go. And, and one thing I have to say is I don't know how to, how to tell anyone how to let go. I know that non-clinging and letting go can happen, but it's kind of mysterious, the process. I don't know how to do that. How does someone let go? I don't know. But I think as we start to engage and, and to the extent we can bring some mindful awareness to our moment-to-moment experience, at least rather than being just in reaction on automatic pilot caught up in it, acting or reacting however we do, if we can start to be a little more awake and mindful and present to what's happening, at least we start to bring some freedom and choice there. And then we start to to notice what's happening and notice the pain and suffering that's happening. So using my example of commuting, I, I was just aware I am suffering rather than just being in it. I don't want to suffer. I'm suffering. And start to see how much holding on and being constricted and tight like that was causing suffering. And somehow through that, when the mind is finally ready, you know, that red hot burning iron, that uh, piece of iron that Ajahn Chah is talking about, it's ready to let it go and drop it. Sometimes we're holding on to something and we know we're suffering and, we, and the letting go is not ready. We just can't. We're not ready to let it go. In those times, there's no judgment about it. There's nothing wrong. It's just to notice. Those are times when we're going to suffer. There might be good reasons why we're still holding on. Several years ago, uh, my father died, and um, um, there were some difficult interactions between. I have two brothers between my youngest brother and myself. Um, it was a very intense time. And um, I know that I was still holding on for a while, not too long, but I think it lasted probably for a month at least to, you know, he said this and this happened and holding a grudge. And, and I knew what was happening. I knew. I wasn't just lost in it. 
yet something didn't want to let go. I would still just get kind of constricted and tight in my gut and my mind would just kind of turn it around. It was I couldn't let it go. And then in its time, it finally let go and we both were able to. And he went through a similar process and then we were able to have some healing between us. I do want to say one important thing around this idea of non-clinging. It doesn't mean being aloof or removing ourselves or distancing ourselves from our experience. That's not non-clinging. That's something different. Sometimes people um, hear the word attachment and non-attachment. And they think, oh, I'm supposed to be non-attached. Right? Not to be attached to things. That's, that has a different connotation to me than non-clinging. Non-attachment can have a sense of, well, I'm kind of disconnected. Like there's that experience over there. And then here I am, whatever the, the I is, over here. And there's a gap or a space in between. So things don't reach me or touch me somehow as much that I'm kind of in this aloof, detached place. That's not what this is talking about. Think about what we're doing in this practice. Now, you know, we're all sitting here with our eyes closed, so people may be doing a whole range of different practices, so I'm making kind of a general statement about Vipassana. You may be doing different kind of practices. But in Vipassana meditation, it's really a combination of two things. Sometimes it's thought of as being synonymous with mindfulness practice. That's actually not true. Vipassana meditation is combining concentration and mindfulness together. Some of us are focusing on developing the concentration side, that place where the mind really gets tranquil, calm, and steady and still. Others of us may be focusing more on the mindfulness side, just staying mindfully aware moment by moment to whatever the changing flow of experience is. And of course, concentration will naturally develop just by bringing the attention back moment to moment. And some of us may be focusing on a way where we can combine both together. And if any of you are interested, I'd be happy to talk to you more about that offline, about these different flavors and styles of Vipassana practice. But just to say that, We're taking a mind concentrated, mindful, and then for most people, I look around a couple of times during the sit, and most people are sitting with their eyes closed. That's how I tend to sit. You don't have to, but that's the way I tend to. And letting, bringing the awareness inward. Well, what's going to happen when we do that? We're turning the light of our awareness directly onto our our experience. What's going on in the body, in the heart, and in the mind. As a result, we're naturally going to connect with, not disconnect, we're connecting with what's going on. Feel it more, experience it more, wake up to it more. Whole levels of ourselves that we didn't even know was in there. Whole aspects of our being that we had no idea about. Some of it you don't want, didn't want to know was in there. Right? We're going to start to see that more and more. So we're actually connecting with experiencing ourselves more and more, waking up to the experience of our lives. So it's actually not an experience of disconnecting or going out somewhere else. It's actually an 
a practice of getting here, connecting more than ever. But it's in that wakeful place that experiences everything that we still find the resting place. It's a very important point around non-clinging versus being detached from things. Because detachment can, it doesn't have to, but it can have a, uh, a, be tinged with aversion. You know, oh, I need to detach from this pain, from this suffering, from this red-hot ball that Ajahn Chah was talking about. It can be useful to detach or to disassociate or to get away from certain experiences sometimes, right? Believe me, when I was having these gallbladder attacks, I only wanted one thing, turn off the pain. If I had thought to go to the emergency room, if I get another one, I will. Give me the morphine. No question about it. Right? It can be useful if experience is too much for us to find the ease of being somehow. You don't say to someone if, if the experience is too strong, you just need to learn to... Right? Your problem isn't that uh, you know, you're in Hurricane Katrina hit and you're in New Orleans and your house is washed away and you haven't had any food or drink for three days and you're in the conventions. Your problem is, is you're clinging. Wow. What the person needs is food, safety, Shelter. That's right. not appropriate there. So when it's appropriate, we need to know when to use that tool, have that in the toolkit of when to be able to change the experience, when to get away, when to alleviate the pain. But it's not the whole picture and it's not the goal in this practice. The goal, as the Buddha taught, was a mind that is free, independent of circumstances. That's, that's the liberation the Buddha was pointing to. That's not conditioned or dependent upon circumstances. That's that cliche, as we say, inner peace that comes from meditation. That's what it's pointing towards. Of course, none of us are unless there's some hidden Buddhas here who've come just to bless us with their presence. And if so, thank you. <laughs> Otherwise, none of us are completely free and live in a place of, you know, our happiness is independent of circumstances. So we don't put a judgment on it. It's just to acknowledge. But we can head, head ourselves in that direction. And we are heading in ourselves in that direction. Every time we are led around like a ring in our nose by our desires and wants, that is, creates that habit and strengthens that habit in the mind. And we all do that a lot, just as human beings. And every time we take any moment to practice this uh, this path of non-clinging and finding that peace, the mindful awareness and the peace in the midst of whatever our experience is, pleasant or unpleasant, and we find that equanimity or at least aimed in that direction, that strengthens that habit in the mind. <laughs>
So here we've all come this evening. We could have spent our time doing anything. Right? This practice is not easy. We all, everybody who's tried it knows it's hard. It's amazing how hard it can be just to sit and be present with our experience. I remember on one um, long retreat, actually she mentioned it, this year-long retreat. I've been out about a year and a half. And I was at this wonderful, beautiful retreat center. It was newly built. Very, just nicely done. They paid a lot of attention to details. It just had a wonderful feeling to the place. It wasn't funky. or It was very luxurious. Had my own room. Uh, the food was really, really good. And there's plenty of it. And there was... Um, they had really paid attention to the soundproofing. So as I sit in my room, which I did for most of the time meditating, you almost you didn't hear any sound. Nobody's bothering you. They even put this kind of cork flooring down in the hallway as people walked up and down the hall. You didn't even hear anything. I mean, it was just it was just great. Nothing to bother you. You could sleep. And, and plus, at this long-term center, you were doing your own thing. I could sleep whenever I want, as much as I want. I practiced. Nobody knew what I was doing. I happened to, you know, most people there, I think, were seriously applying themselves to the practice. But I could come and go as I want, totally on my own. Nobody knew. Nobody cared. It was amazing to me to watch some of the times when I would sit in my room and just be in hell, suffering, lonely. Um, I mean, I had lots of times of being in these incredible... um, Ecstatic spaces, too, that can come in meditation. But also, it was just amazing to watch the mind. Sometimes I'm just sitting here. Lonely, I've been in despair, I was depressed. Uh, all these things that can come up, just trying to be present with myself. So it's not an easy practice. And of course, each of us are going to have our own experiences. For some people, that kind of stuff doesn't come up that much. And for others, it might come up a lot. And for most of us, we'll get a mix of pleasant and unpleasant. You know, when you come in here to sit, you never know what you're going to get. And one of the first things we find out is you cannot come here and just say, all right, tonight, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to have this, I'm going to get concentrated and steady and just go deep into the meditation. You can't do it. I mean, it can happen, but you can't make it happen. The more we practice, the more we're um, strengthening the conditioning factors that makes that tend to happen more and more. But in any given sitting, you're gonna get, you sit down, you get what you get. Sometimes you sit down and you realize it's going to be a long half hour. Okay, what are we going to do? What's our practice? Bring our mindfulness moment by moment, the best we can, we do the best we can, to this changing flow of experience, remaining present, maybe working with the breath or however we use as an anchor, and see what happens in the mind as we bump up against this, just this flow of experience and just sitting here. And if it's unpleasant, we get to see how the mind is. That's the middle way. Not always running away from unpleasant, not always running towards pleasant, knowing the balance on how to... um, knowing when it's time to care for ourselves and when it's time... and, and to make a shift or make a change and to fix the situation and when is it time 
to confront the situation and bump up against the experience. That's that middle way. Um, so we have some time if anybody would like to any questions, comments, either about what was talked about tonight or if you have any other questions around Dharma question or, or anything, that'd be fine also. Or about meditation practice. No question? Yeah. Your dentist story reminded me of mine. Dentist story this week. I had a cavity as well. And uh, I had no thinking, by the way. But, uh, Smart the thinking. Day, I was just going through what was going to happen and anticipating the pain and how the drill was going to feel. And, and it turned out none of it happened that way. And the whole time I was just suffering. I realized later I was just suffering. Putting myself up to hell, just anticipating and saying it never happened. Right. Yeah. Were you aware that you were that, that was happening at the time when you were in? Fi- Not really. Yeah. It was afterwards. You, you were more just caught up. Yeah. 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 So it's a good place to look, right? Yeah. That you know, another place. Um, there's not only the worry and the and the suffering we create about what we anticipate is going to happen, and so that was a whole lot of suffering, and you know, it may or may not have happened. And you may or may not have been able to control it. You know, when you go back next time, you know, who knows? Because the mind is habituated in certain ways. And each of us have our ways that are habituated to create our own suffering. But I remember times um, when I would get some story going in my head. You know, I'm going ha- to go talk to so-and-so. And then a story would start going of... of you know, and she said this, and this is going to happen, and the story—it's t- like a whole movie playing out. Next thing you know, like I'm—I'm kind of pissed off, and and the whole nothing happened. It's like I mean, I'm actually suffering about something that that d- didn't happen in the same kind of way. It's not even worrying about. At least you knew you were actually going to the dentist. It's even worse when I'm here about. You know, I'm going to come home and my wife's going to do this, and and she said that, and this thing, and I'm all worked up, and like none of it happened. The mind's amazing. You know, it'll create anything. So it sounds like you're pointing to a couple of things. One is is that you're pointing to um, that it kind of. Are you saying it, it it was sort of as you look back, it's it's 
shifted some priorities of how you're living your life and, and yeah, yeah. Attachments. right yeah. so it kind of it showed you a different level of what was important to you you know but that's a common story you hear people say like it puts things into focus you know there's this book that has been out for a few years um, says something like it's about um, don't sweat the small stuff I think the subtitle is and it's all small stuff or something like that and I think he's pointing to hopefully we don't have to almost be killed to to at least start to learn uh, to notice the, the little things that and, and learning how to be more peaceful just the way things are yeah but you know there's another piece that and I don't know if this is what you were intending or not but you know w- for the first how, whatever the period of time was between the the accident and when you finally settled down which took some time there was a lot of you know that trauma also it gets in the nervous system it gets in the body and there's something that just happens when we get that trauma also that that you probably couldn't have I mean I don't know you but I'm just making this up and I'm I'm guessing that you know there was a stage that just it was still in your body in the mind in the nervous system and letting go at the same time spinning around I surrender I mean, certainly there's no doubt about it that when something big happens, you know, and eventually, you know, we all are going to die, right? We know that ahead of time. We don't live our lives like we know it, but uh, we know on some level it's going to happen. And when the the big things do happen, you know, obviously, if we can be in a place that can let go when it's happening, you know, when, when the car's spinning around and I don't know what happened, you know, they say it goes in slow motion. I don't know how, but, you know, if you, so I'm kind of projecting a lot onto what you said that it may not be true, but, you know, if, if in that time there can be a letting go, well, if, I don't know if it's so easy to do. If, if obviously, you're going to suffer less in the moment if, if you can kind of, all right, let go, as opposed to just be in terror. Sure, that would be less suffering. My own theory of it is is that the more we practice this ability to find that peace and letting go and be with things as they are ahead of time, then my theory is at least we've got a better chance of being able to let that mind state uh, flower or come to fruition in those moments than if we had never even reflected on that. I don't know, maybe, you know, I don't know how long you've been, but in the Dharma world or whatever your spiritual practice is, but, you know, maybe that practice really um, helped. I'm glad. um, I hope you're okay. I mean, you're sitting there and, you know. Yeah, all right. That's big. That's real big. Yeah. So we're going to end soon. Um, if anybody does have any other one, one or two last comment or question. Okay. Well, then let's just end. And we'll end with 
usually end with some uh, metta practice? Is that pretty typical? Hmm? So we'll end with a short uh, loving kindness and also what's called sharing of merit to end. So I would invite you to If your attention has been, you know, through the talking and everything has been more out into the room and into the world of the concepts, if that's true for you, I would invite you to let your awareness come back and connect back inside yourself. And just to connecting in with your experience. So connecting in with the body to notice in the heart, in the mind. You may or may not have much going on, but just to see whatever's there in your experience. And noticing not only the experience itself, but um, what's your relationship with that experience? How are you holding that experience? How are you being with that experience? And to see if there can be some just acceptance or letting go or non-clinging around whatever's going on. if there is some place of resistance or some place that's not able to find peace in relationship to the experience, then just bring some acceptance to that place in yourself. And then from that place um, of self-acceptance, If you'd like, you could start to actively send some loving kindness. The Pali word is metta. Send some metta to yourself. And it could be just a felt sense. But if you don't have a felt sense, that's okay. You could, one of the common ways it's done is just to repeat some of these loving kindness phrases. It's like a wish or a prayer. So, for example, you could just say, repeat over and over silently, um, may I be happy. And just sending that loving kindness to yourself. Or may I be peaceful. May I be safe. May I be free from suffering.
and then you could just stay with that doing a metta practice for yourself. Or if you would like, you could allow your awareness now to turn outward to everyone else here in this meditation hall and sending that same loving kindness out to everyone here. And it could be the same felt sense or, or just the wish, may everyone here be happy. And may everyone here be peaceful and safe. May everyone here be free from suffering. could stay with that or if you'd like now you could allow your awareness to extend out even further so that it radiates out into the local community and even further out into the whole world and even beyond so we're sending out this boundless sense of metta to all beings And one of the images that's used, it's, it's similar to the rain or the sunshine that doesn't only shine or fall on some people or some beings, but not on others. But it, it, the, sun, the sun radiates on all and the rain falls on all equally. In the same way, we send out this, this metta to all beings, wishing... Um, just as I wish to be happy, may all beings everywhere be happy. And may all beings be peaceful. And may all beings be free from suffering. Finally, let's just take a minute or two to um, do what's called sharing merit. Anytime we do any practice or work on ourselves to develop these Dharma qualities of uh, wisdom, compassion, loving kindness, mindfulness, It is of great benefit to ourselves and to others. It affects not only our own state of mind, but, but all beings that we come in contact with. In fact, it's not possible for it to not benefit all beings. So 
So there's great goodness, or we could say great merit, generated by this work. And we can make that more conscious. So I invite you to reflect and bring some appreciation to yourself that we have all used our time together wisely this evening. That any time we come together to meditate, to reflect on the Buddhist teachings, on this uh, middle way, any time we uh, even a little bit train the mind to be more awake and present, it's of great benefit to ourselves and others. And so we can offer up wishing, um, it's like a prayer, if there's been any goodness or any merit um, obtained or generated by our time together this evening, we offer it up. May it be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. Wishing may all beings come to happiness, may all beings come to peace, and may all beings come to an end of suffering. So good night.